0: Welcome to this week's episode of Compound Your Knowledge, where we cover research from our blog at alphaarchitect.com. This week is a unique week in the markets. We had, uh, today is Friday, yesterday on Thursday, we had the markets down 10%, which was the most the markets went down in a single day since 1987. I saw that stat, that's pretty good. Um, so the market's open, they immediately closed them due to a uh, uh, limit down. Uh, the market went down more than 7%. So we had to put a pause and tell everybody, breathe. The interesting thing was from talking with a few financial advisors, uh, Jack, they're telling me their clients are calling them saying, how do I buy this dip? Like, let's, let's get to work, let's get in, which is, just interesting to me, that's kind of the opposite reaction most people would intuitively think would be occurring right now. We, we think people are scared. It seems people are more like trying to buy this dip. What are you, what are you hearing?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I've had some people actually ask me, same thing. Maybe this is like a good time to buy. Again, it's hard to tell, right? Like, is the market cheaper? Well, yeah, if, if the E stays the same in the PE and the price drops by 30%, then, yeah, the market's cheaper. Yeah. Right. Uh, if the e goes down, but it's temporary and then it pops back up. Then, yeah, it's it's cheaper than it was a couple of weeks ago. Right. So obviously trying to sort through and figure out, you know, what the earnings are going to be is probably something that's hard. And that's why the market has a lot of volatility right now.
0: Yeah. What do you have? Have you looked at any like Cape Schiller type stuff or anything like that? Like, you know, that kind of tries to smooth out that earnings
1: issue? Um, yeah, I mean, on that measure, it's still higher than it was historically, but, uh, you know, I think, well, there's pros and cons of using long-term measures such as that. Um, so I'm not, I'm not a massive, I think Cape Shell is a good index to give you at least a decent indication as to uh, where markets are. Mm. Um, but, uh. I don't know. I, I think current and what future earnings probably will be is more indicative than what earnings was nine years ago. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah. Well, volatility begets volatility. So saw the market down 10% yesterday. It opened up 5% today. It was down 8% at the start of the week. This is uh, this is just how we live now until until we don't. Uh, volatility, you know, will remain high and, until it doesn't.
1: Yeah. Well, VIX is high. The the VIX is
0: high. Big moves possible
1: yeah. right so until that comes down a little bit
0: yeah so we can't focus on short-term stuff focus on your plan do whatever you're you know you're built to do uh, we're gonna keep focusing on our long-term research here so the, the first paper we have is uh, written by Larry Swedro and it was called the gap between large and small companies is growing why? And Larry wrote this paper because it was uh, in the Harvard Business Review. There was the same, uh, an article with the same title, right? The gap between large and small companies is growing. Why? Larry set out to, in a sense, prove uh, whether this is true or false using some other data provided by DFA that the Harvard Business Review did not look at there were three um well yeah so so the harvard business review concluded that large corporations are more and more likely to maintain their dominant positions while small corporations are less likely to become big and profitable Uh, they observed that the large are getting larger while the small tend to stagnate that would kind of be a problem probably economy-wide they gave three explanations for why they felt this was the case. One explanation they offered is that there's a growing corporate divide between big and small firms in terms of R and D expenditures with large firms spending much more. The second one, there's a widening valuation gap. Uh, and oh yeah, the reason for the widening valuation gap is that the difference in median return on operating assets Mm -hmm. was 15% in the 1990s, but has recently doubled to 30 30 30 to 35% an enormous gap in the profitability of operating assets. And a third explanation is that it becomes harder for small companies to escape their class. Okay. So, we're just going to hit through those explanations one by one and see what kind of the research showed, uh starting with migration, right? Uh, that it's, it's, it's harder for smaller companies to escape their class. Jack, did you have any, uh, takeaway from, from Larry's research
1: on that? Uh, yeah. I I mean, I'm, I'm, I forget the exact numbers, but I think when they looked at it, like across time, the amount of companies switching from large to small and small to large was actually very similar. Yes. Right. So, at least on the migration front, it appears to be like that's not uh, not as important. That's actually kind of similar to the current rates are kind of similar to what it was in the past. Right, and yeah, he, he says, that Larry says, the
0: conclusion you should draw is that the proportion of stocks that migrate varies over time and is not predictable from one period to the next.
1: Yeah. Which
0: mm-hmm. is something probably true in a lot of research, right? Like mm-hmm. something you gotta be aware of when you're comparing data sets. Yeah. Um, profitability, the authors of the, uh, Harvard business review study noted the profitability gap between large and small companies in the U S has widened dramatically over the past 25 years. That's something that intuitively I, you know, you, I think you want to think is true. It sounds good. Large companies are more profitable than small companies, but yeah. What did, what did the research say on that check?
1: Yeah, so well, first off, they looked uh, what they, I mean, that stat that Harvard Business Review found was kind of like in the US, right? Yeah. So then Larry, uh, they looked international and found, you know, in international companies, it's actually about the same, mm. right? Um, now, that doesn't still answer the question about US, mm-hmm. right? Because in US, they don't discuss, so I just assume that the data shows that larger companies on it, it, on a measurement of return on operating assets, larger companies are more, more profitable, right? Um, and that could just do, be due to some of the fact of, you know, different makeup of industries, mm-hmm. right? So internationally, you know, there's not as many large technology firms, right. right? And depending on what you qualify and quantify something as an operating asset, right, you might have higher return. So does Google calculate that, you know, their top engineer is an asset to the firm Hmm. and put that in in a value and say, oh, well, here, if we had to put a book value or a value on, you know, Joe Smith, the top programmer, is that included in assets? I don't know if that is. Right. right? Um, So that's probably, you know, across different industries, you're probably going to get different ROAs. And in general... One of the things that's true about technology is you don't need as much physical hardware assets yeah
2: right
0: yeah so right um yeah and and, and they, they make the point that jack was getting at uh before drawing any conclusions from data you want to make sure that the findings are not only persistent but pervasive around the globe right so the harvard business review to jack's point only looked at the us larry uh tried to take a look around the globe to see if it was persistent um, and pervasive, the answer uh, in, in Larry's research was was no. That was kind of U.S.-centric view. Maybe it was because of tech stocks, as Jack said. Um, the, the third uh, reason uh, or third claim of the paper is that large companies are increasingly likely to maintain their dominant positions over small companies. The authors conclude that the primary reason for this is the widening gap in research and development expenses between large and small companies. For example, the authors state that the average large company spent 330 million in research and development while the average small company spent only 6 million. What do you think of that? Jack?
1: Yeah. I mean, so what they do is, you know, this is pretty standard is obviously not surprisingly, if you are a smaller firm, you're going to spend less money in R and D. Mm. -hmm than a massive firm like Google, right? Yeah. There's, there's no way right. you can expect a small firm to compete on a dollar basis mm-hmm. with Google right. for research and development. Like, right. So they state that fact, and that's true. So what Larry does is he says, well, hey, let's look at R&D as a percentage, I forget if he does assets or- To, to operating, operating expenses, ratio yeah. Operating expenses, right? So you have yeah. to scale it by something. Yeah. So if you scale it by operating expenses, what you see is they're actually pretty similar. Yeah. Right. Which makes sense. Right. So as you get larger in general, you have to spend more money in research and development, which is a true fact. Yeah. 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 But just just comparing like large cap R&D and micro cap R&D is like comparing apples and oranges.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. A a company with 10 billion dollars in revenue certainly is going to be able to spend more than a company with a million dollars in revenue. Uh,
1: The micro cap uh, (laughs) payroll firms not spending uh, 300 billion in R&D this year. (laughs)
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. So so this is kind of intuitive. Uh, you know, I mean, I think Larry did a great job uh, taking, uh, you know, analyzing some of this uh, more holistically. He shows the equity returns, the annualized returns for small cap versus large cap, large cap across both U.S. and international developed over the past 20 years. Um, small caps have added about 3% annualized over the last 20 years. Um, emerging markets, it was, uh, about equal, uh, slightly less for the small caps. Any, anything to comment there, Jack, or to add?
1: No, I mean, that's just a fact. Um, been a, been a brutal run recently for yeah. smaller caps. Yeah, recently hasn't done well, but, uh, <laughs> that's going to happen.
0: Yeah, that is going to happen. Okay. So, um, yeah, it see, seems that's kind of bunk. Uh, the gap between large caps
1: and small cap companies is growing, uh, uh, or not bunk. It's just, I would say given if those are your reasons, right? Like the change actually is the same. The R and D over expenses is the same. And then if you do, uh, profitability, High operating assets. You know, internationally, that's not the same. Yeah. So in the U.S., that's still true. Yes. Right. But then, as I mentioned, you know, you have to really think about what an operating asset is. Yes. And whether or not those companies are doing it.
0: Yes. This is this is the academic and Jack. He wants to make yeah. sure, it is
1: <laughs> it is it is right. But it should upward, it should be yeah. somewhat right intuitively. Like if you go back to like microeconomics. Right. Right. If you if you pretend that you have a business. Yeah. That can return a hundred percent. Yep. on an asset, you're, more money is going to go into that industry to bring that operating... like It's just microeconomics 101, right? Yep. If something can return 100% on an investment, yep. you're, you're going to have a lot of people putting money into it, which is going to drive that down. Right. So again, on the ROA side, I think part of that's probably due to the way you, you cl- classify and categorize operating assets. Yes. Good. Um, the next paper we
0: have uh, is titled the case against REITs it starts surveys often reveal investor behavior that is challenging to understand for example there was an investor outlook that highlighted the following yeah this was in the second half of 2019 65% of institutional investors believe that real estate is overvalued and a correction likely to occur in 2019 2020 or beyond I mean If they actually said 2020, that that would have been a great call, right? Um, With the correction we're seeing right now. And then it also said, however, 45% want to allocate the same amount of capital to real estate and 28% want to allocate even more. Uh, So this in this short research note, as the author goes on to say, we will investigate if real estate stocks are attractive for diversifying an equity portfolio. Jack, uh, let's just go back to those two stats they start with at the top. Because I think kind of both things can be true. 65% of institutional investors say real estate's overvalued. A correction's likely. Well, there's always, you know, at some point going to be a correction. Yep. Which we're living right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I actually looked just before we hopped on, roughly speaking, I looked at VNQ versus the market over the last three months. VNQ was down 18%. The market was down 20%. So, you know, similar similar. Uh, and then however, 45% want to allocate the same amount of capital to real estate or even a little more. But again, to me, that just kind of makes sense. I mean, you kind of have a model and
1: yeah, I mean, that's kind of saying, hey, yeah, maybe it's overvalued, but we're just going to stick with what we got because it's probably it's, you know, it's hard to time factors, time specific returns on asset classes. Yeah. Even though they might be somewhat contradictory, it's probably just people don't want to try to deviate from the benchmark right. from whatever that target weight is yeah
0: well two yeah two, two things can both be true at the same time yep um uh okay so uh, he, he started off with essentially do REITs uh add diversification um they found the correlations exhibited similar trends real estate stocks were correlated across markets and Correlation of the stock market were between 06 and 0.8% on average. Um, what, do you, what do you think of that, Jack, in terms of- like- Yeah.
1: So, I mean, well, first question is, okay, if I'm going to add REITs, so if I have an all-equity index, the question is, and what the <clears throat> this paper and blog is trying to answer is, if I start with all-equity, if I add REITs, do I get any benefit from doing so? Yeah. Right. So first thing you want to do is you want to look at correlations. Right. Mm-hmm. If the correlation was one, you'd be like, well, that adds literally nothing. Yep. Right. If the correlation was negative one. That would be like the best asset in the world. Yes. Right. So point six to point eight tells you that you get some diversification benefit, but in general, you're going to move in the same direction. Mm-hmm. Cool.
0: Um, all right. And then they went on to explain the, the uh, diversification benefits from investing in REITs. Um, and, and he went into what partially explains the performance of REITs, number one, size, and number two, bonds. you have anything to add to that, Jack?
1: Uh, I mean, just in general, th- those were two ideas because generally REITs are smaller and REITs inevitably have impact and are, relate- are <coughs> impacted by interest rates. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Bonds clearly get impacted by interest rates.
0: Yeah. REITs, he says REITs feature higher high levels of leverage, which results in positive exposure to bonds. Um, me, um and then it goes into what are some of the alternatives. He lists equity income. Uh US REITs currently yield 3.03% compared to 3.60%. For a U.S. dividend strategy and 4.83% for high yield bonds. So, can can you replace REITs with high yield bonds or 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 you know a high dividend strategy and achieve similar results? Or what do you? What yeah, I mean,
1: on? what he shows when you kind of look at uh, does some comparisons of portfolios where you know you go from all equity to I think it's like 80-20 where you're either 80% equity and then 20% REITs, 20% dividend, bonds, uh, and some other strategies, you see that the returns are kind of similar, actually. Yeah. Um, Meaning, essentially, by just allocating towards, you know, a high dividend strategy, it kind of was similar to adding REITs.
0: Yeah, 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 the, the conclusion gets to, despite REITs featuring only moderately positive correlations to stocks, the diversification benefits were marginal over the last 30 years. Stated differently, real estate stocks are just not unique enough and introduce additional unnecessary complexity for asset allocation models. Furthermore, that class is largely a bond proxy and has benefited significantly from declining interest rates over the last 30 years. Given that bond yields have reached zero or negative levels in many countries, this likely makes the outlook for real estate less appealing. What do you think of that, Jack?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, first off, I don't know what's going to happen in the future, right? Right. Uh, So since
0: this this paper was written, I don't know. Month ago or so, something like yeah. that. And but, um, interest rates have
1: dropped again. I, yeah, I mean, h- high level, uh, but even as you saw over that month, right? Yeah. So let's just say it was written a month ago. Yeah, it was. Right? Yeah. We saw interest rates drop from, you know, the tenure was around 1817. Yeah. Now it's point eight point seven. Yeah. Right? So 1% drop. And even in that thing whereby you would expect REITs maybe get a little bump, right? Um, uh, you see that they still had a similar drawdown yeah. to the market. Yeah. Right. Um, so REITs, are they're just an interesting asset class. They're kind of like equities, kind of not. Um, and depending on your view on it, right, so you could write the same thing and flip it and be like, oh, well, this is the case against, you know, high-dividend stocks. Right. And be like, oh, I should just put a REITs in. Yeah. Right. So you get some diversification benefit, but not a ton. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but no, no different than if you put more, di- more stocks that are just paying high dividends in your portfolio. Right. Right. When the market goes down, the high dividend stocks still go down. Right. On average.
0: Yep. Yep. As, as, as we're seeing, as we started, V N Q the Vanguard REIT ETF down 18% or so over the last three months, market down 20% or so. So uh, over the last three months, sorry. So, uh, so yeah. Maybe it helps, it's interesting, but it definitely has equity-like components. If you're truly looking for something totally different, you know, totally diversifying, you probably got to go somewhere else. True? That's probably true. Probably true. Okay. That's all we got for this week, guys. Uh, we'll, we'll see you again soon.
2: The views expressed in this recording are the personal views of the participants as of the date indicated and do not necessarily reflect the views of Alpha Architect itself. Nothing contained in this recording constitutes investment, legal, tax, or other advice, and should not be viewed as a current or past recommendation or a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities, or to adopt any investment strategy. The information in this recording is based on current market conditions which will fluctuate and may be superseded by subsequent market events or other reasons alpha architect does not resume any duty to update forward-looking statements the information in this recording has been developed internally and or obtained from sources believed to be reliable however no representation or warranty expressed or implied is made or given by or on behalf of alpha architect as to the accuracy and completeness or fairness of the information contained in this recording any liability as a result of this recording including direct Indirect, special, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. Copyright 2018, Alpha Architect LLC. All rights reserved.